BC schools wrestle with new infections. I'd appreciate the information uh, if I came into contact with somebody with COVID. Calls to improve communication with worried parents. Surrey RCMP enter a chaotic situation. What happened in this confrontation with a group of kids? And new options to cross Burrard Inlet. Even at a slow pace, we're moving forward towards a solution. Tunnel or bridge, which would you choose? You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin with some disturbing video of a police call where Surrey RCMP were surrounded and harassed by a large group of kids and some adults. Holy <laughs> The video shows one boy trying to rip off the side mirror from an RCMP cruiser and also throwing a shoe at officers. Police say they were responding to an unrelated call in Newton around 5.30. Once they arrived, RCMP say they were swarmed by 10 to 15 minors and adults. Officers say they were peppered with rocks too and that they were physically assaulted as well. Right after that, you can see one of our officers sort of chasing after a youth. What happened in that situation, actually, allegedly, is that uh, that youth had thrown something which struck that officer in the head. He went to make an arrest of that young person. Um, and then while he's trying to arrest that young man um, for the assault, he's being the child is being held onto by other youth that were there. He's, uh, another member comes to his assistance to help him make that arrest, and that officer, female officer, was then punched in the head several times by some of the people in the crowd. Three youths were arrested during the incident. One was arrested for obstruction, another for assault, and lastly, one for mischief. No charges have been laid yet. Now, less than one week into the new school year and possible COVID-19 exposures have now been reported in at least five B.C. schools. The parents at those schools have received letters, but there are questions as to why the provincial government doesn't announce school cases like other provinces do. Grace Key reports. Delta Secondary is the latest school to confirm a COVID case. No word if it's a student or staff member, but the person is self-isolating. Delta Secondary is the latest school to confirm a COVID case involving a student. Four Surrey schools have also had staff members test positive. Privacy is often cited as a reason for a lack of details, and that doesn't sit well with some parents. I would like to know as much information as I can to make an informed decision that affects my family and most importantly the health of my child. More details. Uh, we want to know a date, time, uh, what particular grade, if it was a student. In Ontario and Alberta, schools with cases are identified on a website. Ontario breaks it down between students and staff. In Alberta, outbreaks are reported and that's when there are two or more confirmed cases within a 14-day period. What you may have seen in Delta is uh, school officials uh, letting the people who really need to know, the people in that school, uh, know what's going on and I, I think they're doing that uh, uh, across the province as well. And so there are protocols, I think those protocols are being followed and I think that's a good thing. Uh, and we can always, um, though, uh, we can always do better. An outbreak would be when we see transmission between people in the school setting where extra additional measures have to take place. And that's what we will be reporting on publicly to everybody when we have an outbreak, if and when we have an outbreak in a school. 
Still, parents say more official information is better than the inevitable rumor mill. People are going to speculate as to what is going, who's got it, who was it, you know, and you know, and I, you don't want to point fingers. So the fear factor comes in, and that's the last thing you want is for you to be looking around over your shoulder saying, is that the person or is that or how exposed is that individual? Grace Key, Global News. Now a look at the COVID-19 numbers for BC and where there is concern tonight. We have 97 new confirmed cases of the virus. That brings our total to 7,376. No new deaths, so that number remains at 219. 63 people are now in hospital. That's up another five over yesterday, 20 in the ICU. 5,548 people are considered recovered, and that leaves us with 1,590 active cases and just over 3,000 people in isolation. Keith Baldry joins us now with more on what seems to be a steady climb in hospitalizations. That's concerning, Keith, and uh, growing worries about what's going, up, uh, going on up north. Yes, the hospitalization number is uh, a cause for concern. Uh, Dr. Monty Henry has been addressing that. So it's doubled basically in less than a week or a little more than a week. Uh, but what's going on in the north also is concerning public health authorities. There was, a re- and we've referred to this a couple of times, a religious gathering some time ago. And the cases that are flowing from that are starting to be significant, significant number. And the seriousness is, is also significant. Take a look at these statistics. Right now, there are 33 active cases of COVID-19 in the Northern Health Authority, mostly in the Peace River area around Fort St. John, near where that gathering took place. Seven are in hospital, but all seven of them are in ICU. One of the, another addition to that uh, actually died, and that was reported yesterday. So this is an alarming situation. No other health authority has all their hospitalizations entirely in an ICU. Dr. Henry talked about the northern situation yesterday and the need not to gather in types of gatherings, whether they're religious ones or family ones, a time to take a step back. And we've seen that, um, you know, particularly in the north now where we've had our first death um, from COVID-19. And there are others um, in, in Fraser Health and Vancouver Coastal who are in intensive care. And these are people who are older than the younger demographic that was driving a lot of the cases that we've been seeing. So we all need to do our part now to remember how important it is to protect people in long-term care, to protect our seniors and elders and people who have underlying health conditions that put them more at risk. And part of that is making sure that we can have those important ceremonies in our lives in a way that is safe for everybody to participate. So one more stat I'll leave you with. Uh, I just checked the dashboard for the BC Centre for Disease Control. Since Friday till today's reporting period, 32 people under the age of 19 have tested positive for the virus, 20 teenagers and 12 people under the age of 10. I think that's one of the largest spikes in that age group uh, for some time. Whether it's linked to the schools reopening, hard to say, but we're going to be keeping track of that stat going forward, obviously. Yeah, definitely a concern for parents. All right, thanks, Keith. Since COVID-19 was declared a pandemic and a provincial health emergency back in March, the B.C. government, of course, has put billions of dollars into a host of relief and recovery plans. And on Thursday, the premier will announce it'll spend another one and a half billion dollars. And Richard Zussman has a look ahead at the province's relief priorities. Later in the week, we'll be talking about our recovery plan. It's been promised. Next week, uh, Minister James and I will be looking at the extraordinary uh, challenges we have for our economic recovery. And promise some more. 
Finally, on Thursday, British Columbians will see how the province plans to spend $1.5 billion for economic recovery. I think it's going to be very important to uh, British Columbians, to uh, households and individuals who are struggling. The expectation is the recovery plan will create the basis of the NDP's election platform, one that could come in handy very soon if the government triggers an election and could build on already existing federal programs. Many households are not going to be able to make rent on $1,600 a month, let alone provide for those other essentials. So uh, there may be a need for the province to step in and top those up. One industry in desperate need is the tourism sector, crushed by COVID-19 with a massive drop-off of visitors from outside the country. The sector asking for $680 million in provincial help. They are still not generating the revenues that are needed to stay in business. So a big part of the package investment that we've asked for is to help those operators through this time. Since the start of the pandemic, more than 160,000 jobs have disappeared in the province and money alone won't fix that problem. Germany has also invested or committed to invest 30% of its recovery budget uh, on climate initiatives. So we're really looking for a significant investment from British Columbia. The big spend so close to a possible election is not the only money at the province's disposal. They also have another billion dollars earmarked for municipalities in transit. And our members are looking for funding for operations so they can continue to deliver the essential services that are needed. The money for municipalities may not come until Horgan speaks to the municipal leaders next week, all setting up for a big gift to taxpayers right before a possible election. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. The B.C. government has released five options for a potential rapid transit link from Vancouver across the Burrard Inlet to the North Shore. Ted Trenecki shows us the routes that could help connect the North Shore with the rest of Metro Vancouver. For North Shore commuters, there's an ever-so-dim light at the end of a new proverbial tunnel. Or it might come in the form of a new dedicated SkyTrain bridge next to the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge. But as always, it's a question of money and as always, a source of frustration for mayor after mayor. About 8% of the population of the Lower Mainland is on the North Shore. When you look at the amount of spending that's planned between here and 2050 for TransLink, if we were to get 8% of that, we'd be able to fund this no problem. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line, so of the five options, the green zone seems most logical, straight from Waterfront to Lonsdale Quay, and then surface track from there to Park Royal and West Van. The Waterfront station would be quite deep, I think in the order of nine or even ten floors or stories deep. Uh, that would have some significant costs for construction. The report suggests the waterfront platform would have to be 50 to 60 metres below grade and the tunnel would be more than 6 kilometres long because of the steep incline on the North Shore. Another option in blue would leave busy Burrard Street Station with a tunnel under Stanley Park and the First Narrows either via Brockton Point or west of the Lionsgate Bridge coming out at Park Royal and then above ground to Lonsdale Quay. There is a large water tunnel now under construction by the Iron Workers Bridge, so they already have a pretty good idea of what to expect. The geological conditions at the particular tunnel site behind me will be well known from, from the studies that have been done in that specific area for that project. Uh, further studies will certainly be required down towards First Narrows 
and across the uh, main Burrard area for the direct route over to Lonsdale. The eastern option sees a new dedicated SkyTrain bridge across the Second Narrows, connecting the quay with either Brentwood or waterfront stations, and it takes some of the stress off downtown stations. If you can take a bit more of an easterly approach and tie into the Expo Millennium Line potentially, uh, then you can use infrastructure that's not overburdened. As to when any of this might actually get done, well, it's about as clear as today's air quality. It could be a decade or more before a shovel hits the dirt. For some, the wait, interminable. Ted Chernecki, Global News. One day after winning her party's top job, new B.C. Green leader Sonia Furstenau faced the media today. She addressed the growing speculation about a snap fall election call and her party's chances of winning more than the two seats that they currently hold. The momentum that we have from this leadership race, of course, we've been building teams, uh, connecting with candidates, connecting with volunteers. Uh, we, we are a much stronger and much more ready to go party, uh, but we are also very clear it, this is uh, an irresponsible uh, political game that John Horgan is playing, and it's time for him to put his service to the people of British Columbia ahead of his service to his party. The driver who died in a fiery crash that seriously injured two other people on the Burrard Bridge nearly three years ago was impaired by alcohol. It happened back in 2017, and a coroner's report now reveals the 32-year-old man behind the wheel of a northbound Audi R8 accelerated and lost control before colliding head-on with a southbound taxi. The impact sheared the Audi in two, killing the driver. Both vehicles exploded into flames. Another motorist managed to pull the taxi driver and his passenger out. Both were seriously hurt. The, uh, the cab driver, Larry Claypool, underwent 14 surgeries and was left paralyzed, but still managed to celebrate his 70th birthday one year after the crash. Well, it is uh, day two of Variety Week for us here. Global viewers like you have already shown tremendous generosity helping Variety to support kids with special needs right across the province. You will notice those names of donors scrolling across the bottom of your screen. All of those donors are having their donations doubled thanks to an incredible gesture by Strand Development and Townline Homes. So please call 310KIDS to help or go to variety.bc.ca. And later in the show, we will tell you Jenna's story. Well, the new Westminster Pier is still burning. What fire crews are doing to put it out, and despite a quick glimpse of sunshine, smoke continues to cause very poor air quality. The new clean air shelter is offering relief in just over a minute. It was just one of those things where you put something down and you forget where you put it. The lost recordings of music legend Joni Mitchell and how he found them nearly 60 years later, coming up on the News Hour. And the selfies that might help explain who stole a smartphone. That's later on the news hour. Right now, though, the fire that badly damaged a large part of New Westminster Pier Park is still burning despite the best efforts of firefighters. The fire was first spotted Sunday night, and now some 25 firefighters are working around the clock at the site. That fire is still burning in the creosote pilings and decking that make up about three acres of the pier structure. Much of that area is under cover and work is ongoing to punch through the decking to allow firefighters to spray down the hot spots. Right now we've got uh, contractors on site that are working with us from the water side. 
Uh, we've got more assets coming in uh, tonight and through the next uh, couple of days. Um, so we're attacking it both from, from the foreshore, from uh, land-based crews on the foreshore. We've got some of our crews uh, on marine vessels as well, fighting it from the water side. So uh, I, right now we're disassembling the timber wharf from the top deck and uh, uh, putting that material on scows and uh, that'll be removed to a safe place where we'll have to still maintain fire watch and uh, firefighting capabilities on, on the debris piles. Well, as you can see, officials know there's still toxic smoke rising from the site, but the thick wildfire smoke has already maxed out the testing scale and people are still being told to avoid that area. And it's for those reasons the city of Vancouver has opened a number of clean air shelters. The smoke has become a choking health hazard, especially for the city's most vulnerable residents. Nadia Stewart reports. It is a break from the thick, smoky air for some of Vancouver's most vulnerable residents. Thanks to high-efficiency particulate air filters, HEPA filters for short, these so-called cleaner air spaces are making it a little easier to breathe even as walking or working outside becomes more unbearable by the day. Headaches, uh, hard time breathing, uh, sweating. This construction worker says she and her colleagues can't wait for this to clear. Of course, this doesn't help the COVID you know, situation. We already have, uh, we need uh, healthy lungs and now uh, this doesn't help. Wildfire smoke from Washington State and Oregon continues to pollute the air north of the border, prompting another day of air quality advisories. There was a slight improvement overnight, but ground level smoke is still blanketing the region. Right now we're under, uh, you know, a, a layer of smoke uh, and we've seen over the last several days that the concentrations have fluctuated from day to day. Uh, and that's what we're expecting over the next several days, is while the smoke is still here, it may vary from day to day. A change in conditions isn't expected until later this week. Until then, those with respiratory problems are being encouraged to stay indoors. And public health officials say outdoor activity should be limited. Five years ago, I said this is the new normal. Now I'm just saying this, this is it. This is reality. UBC uh, professor Michael so. Brower studies the health impacts of air pollution. He says just as we've had to adjust for life during a pandemic, we will have to adjust for life with dirtier air. It means there's some engineering things that we can do with our buildings in terms of uh, filtering, improving air quality in our homes. Brower says populations will have to learn to be flexible. So that key word, pivot, the one we've come to use so much throughout the pandemic, well, get used to it. Nadia Stork, Global News. Well, what a relief to actually see some sun today. Meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now. Christy, does this mean that the air quality is improving? Yeah, and you know what? Not only the sunshine, nice to feel the warmth of that sunshine, temperatures bumped up. But no, not a lot of improvement in terms of the air quality health index. Through the Fraser Valley, yes, a little bit moderate level and through the western sections. But for Metro Vancouver, we're still at a high to very high level. And that's the case across the southern Vancouver Island regions as well. Now, uh, earlier over the last few days, we've had a visibility between about one and three kilometers. Today, we actually reached 10 kilometers. We could see that far. But that has come back down. We're back to a two 
kilometer visibility. So it's certainly coming back. And we do have a general flow from the south. I don't know why the satellite is not showing, but general flow from the south, bringing in another surge of smoke expected not only tomorrow, but into Thursday also. All right, we'll check back with you for the forecast as well. Thanks, Christy. Up next, charities face a crushing drop in donations. Everything we've known, everything we've done has completely changed, you know, and it's, it, it's scary. Why giving in the COVID era is more important than ever. Also tonight, the multi-million dollar settlement in a civil case that gave momentum to the Black Lives Matter movement. Kennerflow is out over here at the Massey Tunnel, two lanes in each direction and no delays, but do keep in mind there are lane closures for overnight maintenance from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. Time to renew your home insurance. Switch to BCAA for local knowledge, customized coverage, and valuable ways to save. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. This portion of the program is brought to you in part by Accent Inns. Stay different, stay real. BC's charities are still taking a beating from the COVID-19 pandemic, which has forced the cancellation of virtually all fundraising events. Many organizations are trying to fill the gaps with virtual events, but as Linda Aylesworth reports, only having limited success. Pick a charity, any charity, and you'll likely hear a similar message. We're down like at least a million dollars. Everything we've known, everything we've done has completely changed, you know, and it's it, it's scary. It's a difference of about uh, three quarters of a million to about $1.5 million that we'll uh, uh, have a loss of this year. The reason, COVID-19, and the resulting job losses and social distancing measures. Overall, our fundraising has been affected in a significant way. Even those receiving government assistance during these difficult times are struggling. We still need to raise about $10 million a year in order to provide for the very complex care that is delivered by our physicians, our nurses and our counsellors. Our signature events, for example, uh, uh, haven't happened because we can't put people on a golf course and we can't have people together. Pandemic is affecting everything from smaller third party events like the Coquitlam Halloween House that's raised money for variety for decades to the big money makers. Basically, can't do any of our, our fundraising galas. Um, you know, all our community events have been cancelled. Love has the opportunity to grow. Raising funds in times of a pandemic means coming up with alternatives. We do have a gala coming up, a virtual gala, and we're calling it the gift of time at home this year. Giving now is more important than ever because not only are donations declining, the need is growing. I think overwhelming is the best word to use. Um, We've seen an increased demand in requests. We've seen about a 25% increase in the number of kids and families in our program just in the last year alone. It's, it's kind of on embarking on a crisis because if we're, we're a last resort charity, so if we're not there to help them, I really don't know who will. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Normally the old tuxedo and the ball gown would be getting a workout at this time of year. but uh, I can't fit into it anymore. <laughs> I don't think I After could. COVID, no. But we can do a lot of work right now, a lot of good right now, and uh, let's do it for Variety Week, shall we? Mobility can be a challenge for many people, but it's even more difficult when the wheelchair you use to get around is also the source of your pain. Jenna is in need of a new specialized power wheelchair to help her with her condition. However, the cost is above and beyond what the family can afford. And that is where Variety steps in. 
I really, really, really love to run around on grass. It's the funnest thing ever. Like most kids, 14-year-old Jenna loves to spend time outdoors, but her condition can limit her ability to enjoy herself. Genevieve has cerebral palsy, a spastic quadriplegic, which means she has very high muscle tone in all four limbs. So spastic means that my muscles are constantly fighting against each other and just twitching out and fighting. Your hips are usually like this when you sit, but instead they're like this and it's bashing into my thigh bone. And it's extremely flippin' painful. <laughs> Jenna received her current chair when she was just nine years old. And as much as it helps her, sitting so much often causes her pain. It limits my mobility more because I always have to be in bed. I have good days and bad days. Today feels like a pretty good day. <laughs> She's very much in need of a new chair. Her new chair will have some of the similar features that the one she has now, but it also will have a recline feature, which will allow her to take pressure off of her hip. However, Jenna's new chair comes with a very hefty price tag. The quote we received for, for the new chair with all the features that she needs is about $26,000. Now, we, we get funding through the at-home program, which will pay for the lowest quote possible. And the lowest quote was without any recline feature, any just basic chair with seating. And, uh, I mean, that's, that's great, but it's not going to help her with her problem. That means Jenna's family has to raise the remainder of the $26,000, which includes asking Variety, the children's charity, for assistance. However, the number of families currently applying to Variety has doubled. And for the first time in their history, Variety is unable to keep up with the demand. If Jenna wasn't able to get her chair, it would, it would be pretty hard on us. Just to see her in pain all the time, it just, it just breaks my heart. And there's really nothing we can do about it right now. Having this chair means a lot to me because if I didn't, I'd just basically be stuck, miserable, stiff, and in pain. Something no child should have to endure. So please call now. Well, Jenna is one of 31 children in B.C. currently waiting for mobility equipment grants from Variety. And you can help give kids like Jenna the gift of freedom and help alleviate some of their pain when you call 310-KIDS and donate now. You can also go online to variety.bc.ca or text the word KIDS to 45678 to make a $20 donation. Just saw Ron and Brenda Appleton. Mentioned in the bottom crawl there. Thanks to everybody who's donating. All right, still ahead, hurricane season hits overdrive. How slow-moving Sally is turning into a major soaker for parts of the Gulf Coast. Also ahead, the new memorial to BC's COVID-19 victims. After a really busy afternoon commute southbound at the Patello Bridge, traffic has actually eased off quite nicely in both directions, but there is a major closure nearby. It's on Front Street between Begbie and East Columbia. That's for a fire. Use Columbia or Royal Avenue instead. From help on the road to protecting your home and car, BCAA's local experts are here for your insurance needs. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. It's the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Another difficult day as exhausted firefighters battle 85 wildfires in the western U.S., including Washington, Oregon, and California. There are at least 35 confirmed fatalities now, with more expected. And while reinforcements are on the way, including from B.C., millions of acres have already burned. Many are hopeful that rain expected later this week would provide some much-needed relief, but now... 
The forecast for lightning has officials worrying about even more fires. Well, the city of Louisville, Kentucky, has reached a multi-million dollar settlement with the family of Breonna Taylor that includes several changes to its police department protocols. But there is still mounting pressure for the state attorney general to file criminal charges in the case. After months of nationwide protests and her name becoming a rallying cry for social justice, Tonight, Brianna Taylor's family has agreed to a $12 million civil settlement with the city of Louisville, one of the largest payments ever in the U.S. following a police shooting. My administration is not waiting to move ahead with needed reforms to prevent a tragedy like this from ever happening again. The settlement does not admit any wrongdoing by the police, but it includes several reforms, such as changes to the approval process for search warrants, the hiring of social workers to go out on mental health calls, and incentives for officers to live and volunteer in the community. The settlement comes more than six months after a botched raid at Taylor's apartment. Police were executing a search warrant, looking for drugs. Officers said they announced themselves, but Taylor's boyfriend, who was also inside, disputes that. He wounded an officer when he says he fired his licensed weapon, fearing an intruder. Police returned fire, killing Taylor. Her family says no drugs were found in the apartment. Brianna Taylor was in her apartment who had every right to sleep in peace and not have the police execute a dangerous, I believe unconstitutional and unjustifiable no-knock warrant on yet another black citizen in America. One of the officers there that night, Brent Hankinson, was fired. The police chief wrote in his termination letter that Hankinson displayed an extreme indifference to the value of human life. Hankinson has not commented. Two other officers are on administrative leave. None of the officers has been criminally charged. Sources close to the matter tell NBC News that the Breonna Taylor case could be presented to a grand jury as early as this week. But Kentucky's attorney general says there is no official timetable for when any potential charges would be announced. An emotional tribute in Vancouver's West End today for a 77-year-old man who lost his life to COVID-19. The daughter of a man who died of the novel coronavirus helped unveil a memorial in honor of her father and delivered a powerful message. Catherine Urquhart has more. On a bus shelter in Vancouver's West End, an unusual memorial, one dedicated to the life of a neighborhood resident taken by COVID-19. Gary Moncton's daughter, Sam, unveiled the tribute. My dad would have been really pleased to have um, been honored like this. In the early days of the pandemic, we featured Sam as she played trumpet outside her dad's Harrow Park care home. The lockdown prevented her from visiting him in person. So instead, she gave her blind and frail father the gift of music. Not long after, Gary Moncton died from COVID-19. The memorial at Thurlow and Davy was organized and paid for by MLA Spencer Chandra Herbert, who was unable to attend because smoke grounded his plane in Victoria. The reason for us gathering here this morning is to recognize, celebrate, remember, and to put the names, faces, and stories to the numbers we hear daily of those lost to COVID-19. Plans are underway to recognize others who have died from COVID, and it's hoped the tributes 
will encourage everyone to do their part during the pandemic. Just do what we're told to be kind, be safe and be calm. Okay, let's just wear the mask and let's get this over with. And so we don't have any more casualties like my dad. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. The lost tapes of one of Canada's greatest songwriters. Wherever Joni went, she had a ukulele. We'll tell you how a retired DJ found the recorded treasure he thought was gone for good. And coming up in sports, how the Tennessee Titans kicker turned embarrassment into elation. The unusual video and pictures a Malaysian man found on his phone a day after it went missing. That's right after Christie's forecast. Very strange. All right, but first, before we get to Christy and our forecast, concerns are growing on the Gulf Coast tonight as Hurricane Sally continues its slow march towards landfall. That slow pace is a concern because it's expected to dump feet of rain, producing what forecasters are calling historic life-threatening flooding. Tonight, a slow-motion disaster. Hurricane Sally slogging to the Gulf Coast. It's drenching rains, flooding parts of Florida, putting Mississippi on high alert. This shifts west and we're going to see a good bit of it. And shifting to hit Alabama head on, where water is already rising. We still hope and pray that Sally will not bring that type of pain and heartache. But my fellow Alabamians, Hurricane Sally is not to be taken for granted. A storm surge warning now stretches from Louisiana all the way to the Florida Panhandle. While hurricanes are rated by wind speed, water is the biggest threat. Almost 90% of hurricane-related deaths in the U.S. are water-related, from surge, rip currents, and flooding. And Sally promising a lot of water. Forecasts in some areas now calling for more than two feet of rain. This storm is moving slower than any storm I've ever seen. Carlos Finley, who grew up in Mobile, is already watching water creep towards his home. That's my greatest concern, is that it's going to get on top of us and she's just going to sit here. Coast Guard crews in Mobile, now off the water until conditions improve. We have a lot of coastal flooding, so that's going to be very significant, the flooding portion of this. That's your biggest concern tonight? That is my biggest concern, is safety of life. And tonight as Sally turns its way towards us here in Mobile, it's moving slower than I'm walking right now, not even two miles an hour. And it's that slow speed combined with torrential rain that could lead to devastating flooding. Yikes. Yikes is right. Okay. Seeing the effects of, uh, of uh, the changing weather, the changing climate throughout yeah. America. All right, Christy, so, and sure. including our air quality. Yeah, because of all the fires in through uh, California, Oregon, that's for sure. Yes, yeah, so uh, we had some improvement in terms of air quality advisories today, and that's for the Caribou and the Central Interior. So that has ended for your region, but you can still see air quality advisories still widespread across southern BC, and that is because of the smoke that's moving up from the southern south of the border. Now, these are the current visibilities across the region. It's quite variable, but you'll know Metro Vancouver only at two kilometers right now, a bit better in through Abbotsford and basically Kamloops North is where we're seeing that better air quality right now and why the air quality advisories have now ended. Here's a look at both the smoke and cloud cover. Generally, we've got a flow from the south and why we're expecting still more smoke through the day tomorrow and Thursday. But there is some some uncertainty. The models are not in agreement as to where we'll see the thickest smoke. There is a chance that it may shift into the interior, so we'll be 
be watching for that tomorrow. But in terms of a major change in our weather, we're not expecting that until Friday, where rain will push in and more wind to really help scour out that smoke. So Friday and into the weekend is where we're expecting a more significant improvement. And I want to show you this just to show you how far that smoke is drifting. There is so much in the air mass and it's spreading right across the country, being seen in Toronto as well. So here's your forecast for tomorrow. Sunshine across the north and through the Caribou region, whereas widespread smoke still expected across the south. Kamloops and Merritt, Revelstoke, it will come and go a little bit for your region, but south coast region expected to be entrenched in that smoke again tomorrow and over the next two days before a change begins to occur on Friday. Now I want to show you this uh, central windows weather window, which is a great shot of a lone tree growing out of a stump. This is on Ferry Lake in Port Renfrew, surrounded, of course, by the smoke to really create that lone tree feel even more. To figure out what was going on there. It's a reflection. Very cool. Thanks, Christy. Like it. Well, monkeys, we know they are known to be sneaky and they often steal things, including, as it turns out, cell phones. A Malaysian man couldn't quite believe what he found saved on his iPhone after it went missing for a couple of days. It appears it had been taken by a monkey while the man was napping. Well, he found it nearby after repeatedly trying to call it. And as you can see, the cheeky primate managed to turn the camera on and take some videos and selfies. What a weird story and a weird Monday nighter for football fans last night. Uh, I think that'd be a great show. Monkeys (laughs) with cell phones. (laughs) Half hour every week. Uh, We will relive the strange night of Titans kicker Steven Goskowski. I've played for a long time, and hopefully this is the last game like that. He made the kick that counted, but only after he missed four previous kicks. Unbelievable. Okay, thanks, Squire. And we've got the story of the lost Joni Mitchell tapes and where you will be able to hear her earliest recordings eventually. One half of the Stanley Cup final is set. What is going on with the other half? Let's find out from Squire. BC's Tom Gillardi owns the Dallas Stars, and the Dallas Stars are in the Stanley Cup final. And you might be wondering, how did they do it? Well, they are very good in tight spots. Their last six wins have all been by one goal. And in overtime games in the playoffs, they are 4-0. And last night was an overtime win over Vegas. Dennis Gurionov on the power play from one of those dumb over-the-boards delay-of-game penalties. That shouldn't be a penalty anyway. Good for Dallas coach Rick Bonus. He, of course, was a Canucks assistant to Elaine Vigneault for seven years. He's been an NHL head coach or assistant coach basically every year since 1984. Only one year in the last 36 seasons has he not been in the NHL. If he's available, he gets a job. He's a good guy and a good hockey man. Who will they meet? Well, it could be Tampa if the Lightning win tonight. The Islanders have to win three straight to win this series. It's 1-0 New York, but Victor Hedman, who's been huge, for Tampa Bay ties at 1-1. They're going into the third, tied 1-1. So last night in the NFL, Tennessee beat Denver on the strength of a late field goal by veteran Steven Gutkowski. Now, if he hadn't made that kick, Titans fans may have been demanding that he be cut because before he was the hero, he was the GOAT. And I don't mean GOAT as in greatest of all time. It was a tale of redemption in real time. A chippy. From 25, all the way, 
and splits the uprights like he's been doing it all night. That kick was the equivalent of waking up from a nightmare and realizing you're okay. Except for Tennessee kicker Steven Goskowski, the nightmare was real. Because before making the game-winning kick, Goskowski had missed three field goals and a convert. He missed right, he missed left, and this was his first game with Tennessee. So it's a good thing he got a fifth chance to make a first impression. You know, I really wanted to come out and make a strong first impression, and I did the exact opposite. He was so frustrated, he actually took the sock off his kicking foot just to see if that would help. I mean, I would have I taken my pants off to make the try something different. Um, I wasn't doing very well. I had to switch something up, maybe just for mental sake. And, you know, it's just kind of a weird, weird quirk, I guess. But he wasn't afraid of trying one more kick. This is a guy who has won three Super Bowls with New England, so he's used to pressure kicks, just not used to him putting the pressure on himself with all those misses. You know, I don't shy away from those situations, even when I have an awful game like that. I'm trying to be a pro and keep my poise and keep my head up. And, you know, like I said, I'm just grateful for the opportunity, even though I probably didn't deserve it. We don't know when the Vancouver Warriors can play lacrosse again, but we do know they can draft new players this Thursday. It's been a long time since the Vancouver Warriors made use of their war room. Come Thursday, the Warriors will be front and center during the NLL draft as Vancouver currently holds the third overall pick. It's uh, 2,558 days to be exact that uh, this organization gets to select a player in the first round and uh, we're very excited. Throws it behind the goal for McBride and he dunks it in! Jordan McBride! 2013 was the last time Vancouver selected in the first round of the draft. Now, if you're winning championships are always in contention year after year, that's all right. But if you've been languishing near or at the bottom of the standings, which has been the Warriors' case, you need to be building through the draft by cashing in on those first-round picks. And that's exactly what the Warriors are planning to do this time around. You know, I'm, I'm a glass-half-full guy. I, I don't want to speak... Uh, you know, badly of the, the previous ownership and managers, but you know they left our cupboards completely bare and we've worked hard through our uh, scouting staff and coaches to sort of uh, get those shelves restocked and this is the first year now. We've got a first. Next year we've got a first, a second and two thirds and we'll continue to stock our uh, draft uh, board. This is the guy Vancouver has their sights set on, BC boy Reed Bowering. The former Coquitlam Junior Adnax captain went to five straight Minto Cups and can play both ends of the floor at a very high level. It's so important that you bring in young players into the organization. We're trying to get as many Western-based players into this organization that have quality on the floor and they're good character guys off the floor. That's like us. Quality <laughs> on the floor and good characters off the floor. Well, that's you. <laughs> well, and so. Thanks, Squire. A BC DJ had the earliest recordings of Joni Mitchell, but you don't know what you got till it's gone. How he found them nearly 60 years later. Next. For nearly six decades, the first ever recording by Canadian music legend Joni Mitchell was rediscovered in a box of odds and ends. Now, the 1963 recording has been returned to Mitchell and it's going to be released in a new box set of her early work. Here's Brad McLeod. 
Once again, we're back to the boomer years. Barry Bowman has been sharing what seems like a tall tale for years about iconic Canadian singer-songwriter Joni Mitchell. Joni lived in Saskatoon with her parents, but she was part of our crowd. He says when he was a young disc jockey at CFQC in Saskatoon, he recorded Joni Mitchell singing when she was just a teen, even before she was a Mitchell. Joni Anderson was 19 years old. I think I was about the same age, maybe a little bit younger. And so we spent a couple of nights, in fact, um, recording just a few of these folk songs that she enjoyed. And that was it. By the way, another... Barry went on to have a successful career in radio across the country, ending up on Vancouver Island. Joni found worldwide fame. And those recordings... You don't know what you've got till it's gone. Lost by Bowman somewhere along the way. But a few years ago, Bowman's daughter dropped off a box of stuff. Tapes, reel-to-reel, cassettes, that sort of thing. He joked that the Joni recordings could be in the box. As I said that, there they were. I realized that there were two tapes with a total of nine songs. Joni Anderson, written on the reel. Bowman reached out to Verve Records, known to have quite a music catalog. You may possibly have the first recordings in existence of Joni Mitchell. The tale gets better. In 2018, those kids from Saskatoon met again in L.A., and Bowman handed Mitchell her recordings. Embraced my wife and me and uh, took took us into her life with her people. Next month, the world will hear the lost music for the first time on a new five-disc box set. And in all her, her wonderful gloriousness, she was just, once again, Joni Anderson from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Brad McLeod, Global News, Victoria. Good job, Barry. What a story. Mm-hmm. All right, it's only two days into Variety Week, and already we're starting to put a big dent in that wait list. We want to thank Accent Inns, who during this news hour committed to a very sizable donation. So far, global viewers and Accent Inns have helped 220 kids with $550,000 in donations. And you can still help. Call 310-KIDS now. All right, last word on weather, Christy. Sure, widespread smoke still expected for the next two days, not until Friday that we're expecting a big change. All right, thanks very much. Thanks for watching, everyone. Have a good night.